Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on Apple and Google Podcasts. This is Episode 73 of the show where we talk about how the airline passenger experience is evolving in a mobile, social, vocal world. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mary. It's been quite a while since our last episode, but it's been a, a kind of a roller coaster summer. A lot of things have transpired in the meantime. Yeah, I, I feel a little bit like kind of a headless chicken these days, Max. <laughs> you know, every day brings some uh, fresh bad news. Um, uh, and I, I guess I confess I'm kind of deeply saddened also, of course, to see so many people in our industry grappling with job losses and furloughs and the impact of COVID-19 on aviation. It's truly been breathtaking in scope. And um, so trying to stay positive has been a little bit of a challenge, but we push forward. And, and as always, we hope that the introduction of a good vaccine is not too far off in the distance. Yes, hopefully that will uh, change things a little bit. But yeah, our industry has been just uh, hammered, as have several others and, and people in general, but uh, yeah. we'll, we'll find a way through it. All right. Well, let's take a look at some of the PaxX news stories that are making headlines. First, Global Airline Trade Group, IATA, the International Air Transport Association, is appealing to all travelers to wear a face covering during the travel journey for the safety of the passengers and crew during the COVID-19 crisis. Now, it says it is emphasizing the need for passengers to comply with the recommendation following recent reports of travelers refusing to wear masks in flight, resulting in costly and inconvenient diversions to offload those passengers. Well, indeed, we've seen a number of diversions this summer. On July 23rd, a Delta flight set to depart from Detroit Metropolitan Airport returned to the gate to remove two passengers who refused to wear masks. Also in July, a WestJet flight from Vancouver to Toronto was forced to divert when an unruly passenger refused to wear his mask and also he lit up a cigarette. On August 11th, Alaska Airlines deplaned and delayed a flight out of Spokane because several passengers refused to wear their masks. Now, U.S. airlines in particular have had to strengthen their mandatory mask policies. CNN reports that Delta has already banned roughly 240 people from flying because of their refusal to wear masks. Well, Mary, I don't know. We listen to experts really in all facets of life. And sometimes the experts all agree, sometimes they don't. So we consider all the factors and make our decision. But one factor when it comes to wearing masks is the effect you have on the health of other people. So common sense tells me to wear a mask around others. Common courtesy tells me to wear a mask around others as well. And just the other day, I think Lady Gaga put it pretty well. She said, it's a sign of respect to wear a mask. And that's where I'm coming from on this. Uh, when you're on a flight, when you're at the airport, you're around people. I think it's just uh, common courtesy, common sense to wear a mask. What do you think, Mary? Well, yes, Max. Of course, I agree with you there. But of course, also hindsight being 2020, I think kind of broadly, it's really unfortunate that the messaging around masks was unclear from the very beginning. 
you know, we recorded a podcast in March shortly after COVID-19 was named a pandemic. And at that time, the World Health Organization was saying there wasn't enough evidence to suggest that wearing a mask protects people. It was a bit blurry, Max, shall we say. And we were kind of given to understand that masks should be worn by healthcare workers and people with underlying health conditions. And then later, as new research became available, the WHO's messaging seemed to evolve. But by that time, many people were entrenched on the issue and they took umbrage when they were told to wear masks in public and when social distancing is impossible. And whilst I appreciate what you're saying, the message that masks protect others from you, not you from others, it sounds like just common courtesy, but it clearly didn't resonate with many people, including many Americans. And perhaps if they had heard protect yourself and others by wearing a mask, they would have been motivated by self-interest. Hmm. I mean, in a capitalist country like the United States, many people are motivated by self-interest. There's kind of this uh, survivalist mentality here in the U.S. by nature of the way our system is is structured. So I kind of wonder if mask adoption would have been greater with a different messaging approach, appreciating, again, that hindsight is twenty twenty. but very specific to the airlines. They were placed in an absolutely untenable position because in the U.S. alone, with no federal mandate in place to require passengers to wear masks, airlines have had to, as you say, enact their own policies. And each one is, in fact, a little bit different. For instance, some airlines allow face shields, some do not. And we have a list of every major U.S. airline's mask requirements on the website. But I would urge anyone to be sure to check with their individual airline before traveling because we have seen that these rules are somewhat fluid and they're, they're being strengthened regularly. So what may be good today may not be good tomorrow. Um, now, in the early months of the pandemic, airlines sought to honor disability rights and provide waivers to those with genuine medical conditions precluding them from wearing masks. But unfortunately, too many passengers abused this leeway and falsely claimed a disability, and not unlike how passengers abused rules around the traveling with emotional support animals. Yes, yes. So really, really, really unfortunate that this happened um, because the problem got so bad that the Department of Justice had to issue a warning that its seal was being used inappropriately by passengers claiming protection under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Of course, the Air Carrier Access Act is what governs air uh, access to air travel for persons with disability, but it hardly mattered to the individuals who were trying to skirt airlines' mask requirements, and they were throwing this false paperwork in the faces of airline employees. Really just crazy stuff. Um, so this deception on the part of a minority of passengers naturally hurts people who are truly disabled, disabled and it's really rather despicable when you think about it. Um, and then, of course, when passengers refuse to wear masks, it opens up all sorts of concerns around liability, particularly for the airlines amid the pandemic. So, as you say, now the airlines are cracking down in a big way because they have to, um, and flights are being diverted and passengers are being banned uh, from flying for not wearing a mask. If you show up at the gate without a mask, you won't be flying on most U.S. carriers, period. Or you'll need to get clearance from a doctor, and that's certainly the case for Delta passengers. They need to complete a, a clearance to fly examination at the airport that can take up to an hour or more. So, Max, do you think that the administration should have issued a federal mandate that all passengers must wear max or, uh, masks? Or do you think that the onus should have been on the airlines? They, they don't like regulation after all, but they seem to be regulating themselves here pretty well. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, I think, Mary, and – uh, the the airlines have have the authority to 
mandate whatever they want to. I mean, uh, practically. When you purchase a ticket, you're uh, entering into a contract with the airline and you're accepting, you're agreeing to the airline's terms and conditions of carriage. So if the airline uh, has a policy, has a mandate that masks are to be worn, they have the authority, I think, to enforce it. But if there was overlaying that a federal mandate for masks, then it makes life a lot easier, I think, for or would make life a lot easier for the airlines when it comes to policing the requirement. Uh, now we see passengers arguing with the uh, with the airline, with the cabin crew over the requirement to wear a mask. Uh, for example, uh, if the argument from the, the crew is, that, well, this is a federal requirement, it kind of takes them off the hook and makes it easier for them perhaps to to try to enforce it, to try to police it. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not optimistic that we would ever see a mandate at the federal level for, for masks, at least maybe not until January. Okay, interesting. You know, Max, the the mask issue kind of hit home for me personally, as I have dealt with some health issues amid the pandemic. So the last time we chatted was at the end of April. And at that time, I felt I felt uh, fit as a fiddle, Max. Um, I thought to myself, well, hopefully I'm healthy enough to weather any COVID storm that comes my way. But life happens. And within about two weeks of our podcast, I was facing some unexpected health issues. And it was a very humbling experience. I went from feeling immunostrong to immunocompromised. And it was a good reminder of how life can change on a dime. And if I am to do a bit of self-analysis, I have to admit I became, shall we say, a little less eager to test the herd immunity theory than I may have been at the start of the pandemic when we were discussing that. Um, so that has been kind of an education for me. And, and, and oftentimes, you know, sometimes something has to hit in your own backyard for you to fully appreciate, you know, these types of issues. But uh, it certainly has been humbling and educational amid the pandemic. Yes, I think we've all learned a lot about ourselves and about each other. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. All right, moving on next in what's being called a major announcement, United Airlines is permanently getting rid of change fees on all standard economy and premium cabin tickets for travel within the U.S., and that's effective immediately. Also, starting January 1st, 2021, any United customer can fly standby for free on a flight departing the day of their travel, regardless of the type of ticket or class of service. Now, uh, Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines, of course, has explained this decision as being a response to customer wishes. He said, when we hear from customers about where we can improve, getting rid of this fee is often the top request. But he also called United's approach to crisis this time as completely different, putting the customer first, or as he said, looking at new ways to serve our customers better. Now, we also see that Mileage Plus members get some new benefits as well. Redeposit fees are waived on award travel for flights changed or canceled more than 30 days prior to departure. Also, free seat confirmation on a different flight within the same departure and arrival cities as the original ticket, for example. So, Mary, the, the overall United strategy here seems to be to present the airline as customer-friendly, hoping that this will help flyers return. You think that's going to be effective? I mean, I think it's 
Wow. An amazing announcement. Um, and they're, they're saying it's permanent. So forever is a very long time, Max. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I am kind of curious if that is indeed going to be the case. Um, uh, but of course, uh, not long after United made this announcement, American Airlines and then Delta Airlines followed suit. So it's been quite a dizzying, you know, 24, 48 hours in aviation uh, to see all of these change fees fall away. Those of us who have flown Southwest Airlines for many years have known the joys of a change fee, free reality, and it's a big reason why so many of us are fans of this uh, carrier, including myself. Um, Southwest doesn't always have the cheapest fares, but when bags fly free and there are no change fees, rather when the cost of these benefits are effectively baked into the ticket, it brings a consistency to the equation that really speaks to me on a personal level, uh, even when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. So I personally am very excited to learn that United, Delta, and American are going in this direction, in this direction rather. Now, the airlines have been waiving change fees amid the pandemic and through the end of the year, but with traffic at historic lows, they need to do more to inspire people to feel confident to book. Um, And as is so often the case, the dominoes start start falling when one major airline announces, then the other the others often follow suit. That's what's happened here with United being first on the draw. But I do wonder if United played its hand right in being the first mover. So when it announced its decision on August 30th, it won some serious PR accolades, um, especially on social media. But when Delta and American followed up, um, we saw that some started arguing that they have some better propositions. So the One Mile at a Time blog has a great breakdown, and we'll include a link to it on the website. But it notes that not only are select international destinations included in Americans' policy, for instance, but most importantly, you get the residual value of your ticket if you rebook on a cheaper flight, something that United isn't offering. So it's a nice benefit benefit from American, and so it's clear there's subtle but important differences to each airline's announcement. And there are differences, of course, to the service they're offering um, during this crisis. Among these three big legacy carriers, Delta has been actively capping capacity on board its aircraft. So one might argue that in dropping change fees and blocking middle seats, Delta kind of continues to set the standard for air travel during the pandemic among the legacies. I think a fair argument could be made there. The capping of capacity has been a big one. It has been lauded by passengers um, on social media. Southwest and JetBlue have also been capping capacity. And uh, so when my daughter recently flew BWI LAX, there was nobody in the middle seat beside her, Max. And that gave me great confidence to let her fly. And some say, well, that's just perception. It doesn't enhance her safety. But oftentimes, perception is very meaningful when we're talking about passenger experience. Max, you know, airlines have decades ago announced things were, would be permanent and they turned out not to be. Do you think that uh, this elimination of change fees will be permanent? I would have to say, Mary, probably not, just because the word permanent brings with it just a a level of risk that historically has proven that nothing is permanent. It's interesting. I mean, these fees are a big source of revenue. Uh, Will Horton, writing in Forbes, has some some sort of illuminating numbers. He said that – 
in uh, in 2019, United earned $625 million in change in cancellation fees. And while that's only a small percentage, 1.6% of their uh, total passenger revenue for United, it's, it's, as Horton points out, it's almost pure profit. So uh, tossing that away is, is, is no small thing. Uh, but uh, will we never see you know, the re- return of these kinds of fees? Uh, <laughs> never is a long time. It is. There's so much uncertainty now, you know, for people when they're thinking about booking. You know, we're facing uncertainty around travel restrictions that are changing regularly, scheduling changes, of course, um, and the requirement to quarantine for 14 days on return from a trip, uh, particularly if you've been at what is deemed a hotspot, Max. So these are all major considerations. And so um, not to mention the fact that you don't want to show up at an airport with any kind of sniffles or cold or flu or anything these days. You, whereas perhaps in the past, you might have taken the chance and flown. Now you don't want to do that. You don't want to be that person who's coughing in the corner. Um, and candidly, in, in some countries, you won't be allowed to get on board the aircraft if you are. So there's, there's so many considerations, including on the day of travel, are you fit to fly? And the ability to be able to make a change, say, for example, if you wake up with a temperature um, and say, okay, can I, you know, see this through, find out what's going on here and, and, and change my flight without facing, um, you know, these fees is pretty essential, I think, to get air travel back and rolling again. So maybe it's just out of pure, you know, necessity given the situation. Um, I do wonder if the smaller carriers are now going to follow suit, JetBlue, Alaska, you know. I think that's an excellent observation. I hadn't really even considered that, Mary. That uh, you you really do want people to have the flexibility to, you know, change their flights to, to cancel, to postpone if their uh, health dictates it. And yeah, you'd hate to see people getting on board a plane because they don't feel so well, but they want to avoid two hundred dollar charge. Yeah, that's a, a a really good point. So yeah, I think the others will will follow suit. Uh, you know, we were chatting a little bit before we started recording, Mary, you both saying that uh, we were kind of missing air travel and, you know, that whole experience. And I, yeah. I'm wondering if the personal criteria for safety doesn't evolve over time. In other words, the longer we go without being in the air tends to uh, sort of lessen our concerns to the point where we just, you know, say, it's I, I just have to go do it. Uh, I don't know. And I don't know if that'll happen to other people as well or if that's just folks like you and me. Ah, that pent-up demand, for sure, for sure. I mean, I I am itching to to get back on the road, as it were, you know, six months grounded. Well, actually longer because, you know, I think it was was January was my last flight. So it just feels so very strange, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, uh, but again, you know, if you suddenly find yourself dealing with a health issue, then you're not in a position to fly now. And, and so these are all considerations and it's kind of like, you know, my daughter is heading back to school this week and, um, we've been told that if a child shows up with even, you know, runny nose and is not feeling well, they, they will be sent home immediately. Um, you have to get your child to the doctor and then they need to, you know, gets sunk into the virtual learning until they're well enough to go back 
to school. So in some ways, it's almost like the airlines are giving people a backstop with the the fee issue here. (laughs) Not unlike what schools and, you know, other facilities are having to do in light of these kind of really strange, unique, uh, extreme circumstances. Well, one more topic we have uh, this episode is that uh, like the broader aviation industry, the in-flight connectivity stakeholders have suffered greatly during the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Why is that? Well, revenue from paid Wi-Fi sessions has pretty much dried up. Some carriers have even shut off their systems for a period of time. But we see major change afoot, perhaps, in this part of the industry. Some believe that when aviation recovers, IFC will become more important than ever. Now, Mary, you're probably the preeminent connectivity, in-flight connectivity uh, expert around. Certainly, uh, I don't know anyone who knows more about it than you. And you've been tracking this since the inception of the industry. So what do you think is happening now? And what do you think this might mean for the passenger experience? Uh, it's fascinating, Max. You know, in-flight, ent- uh, in-flight connectivity and entertainment pro- providers have had a really tough go of it amid the pandemic. And as you say, revenues have all, all but dried up. On the entertainment front alone, many carriers, for example, are not even refreshing their IFE content. So if you fly today, you might still be accessing Christmas movies, which might feel like you're in an episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> um, but the COVID-19 crisis has shone the spotlight on the importance of in-flight internet especially, because, of course, many people have been accustomed to working from home over the last six months. And they're used to using true broadband links to stay connected to their office. And logically, they will expect the same type of broadband service on board aircraft when they fly again. Traditionally, only a few carriers have really provided that sort of experience consistently. So we're hearing from in-flight connectivity providers that they're now looking to provide a, quote, work-from-home experience in the skies, which is kind of a a little bit of a twist on, on the prior goal. And what does that look like? Well, that means you're going to need a lot of satellite capacity if you're supporting a satellite connectivity solution on board aircraft. That means you are going to need better uplink capabilities. And so the cost of satellite capacity will be in the spotlight, Max. And in this context, the announcement made this week that GoGo is selling its commercial aviation business to satellite operator Intelsat is very, very interesting. Now, GoGo, of course, provides uh, satellite-based connectivity to Delta Airlines, Air Canada, British Airways, Virgin Atlantic, Aeromexico. The list is rather long. It's a major player in in-flight connectivity. So for it to be selling its uh, commercial unit to Intelsat um, creates a vertically integrated organization that in theory should be able to better compete with the likes of Viasat and Imarsat. These are two satellite operators which have really focused on in-flight connectivity in recent years. And so the landscape is, is becoming hotly competitive with major satellite operators kind of taking the lead. Um, And it's great to see some consolidation finally happening in the industry, Max. We've talked about it in the past. It has been predicted for years because major stakeholders have been losing money for years because passengers want to be connected, but as ever, they do not want to pay for the connection. Um, And it's difficult to see that changing in the future. So, you know, when you say, well, what does this mean for passenger experience? Well, people are obviously going to be watching their pocketbooks more closely 
after the pandemic. Um, a lot of folks are not going to have that kind of discretionary spend. Uh, so they will be looking for connectivity to be offered for free on board. The aircraft Viasat uh, mentioned earlier has pursued a free Wi-Fi model and Imarsat is working to support the same in Europe. Uh, there's a really interesting program right now in Euro Europe running uh, for Lufthansa customers who are also T-Mobile subscribers on the ground. They're getting a free in-flight Wi-Fi benefit as part, part of their mobile plan, Max, um, which is a really cool way to, to offer it um, and also offset the cost of it. So I would say the pressure will now be on Intelsat and its new GoGo unit when uh, this deal is closed at the beginning of next year to kind of go in the direction of free internet and Delta, which is GoGo's preeminent um, airline customer, has said that it wants to offer free browsing to passengers. So presumably it will be looking to GoGo and Intelsat for, for aid in doing that in the coming years. There's also a lot of discussion that it may uh, go multi-source and uh, tap Viasat as well. Um, so just to, to be a journalist covering in-flight connectivity has been really um, interesting, to say the very least, Max. But um, I, I do think that we are moving towards a free browsing model um, with many airlines realizing that that is increasingly the cost of doing business. That's the expectation that passengers are going to have. Um, now, where do you stand on this issue, Max, when it comes to being connected? Would you say that you will expect it even more um, after the pandemic? Well, I think, Mary, I've always, I think, taken the position that ultimately the, you know, the, the carriers need to consider that they need to improve the service ultimately to make it more like a, an at-home experience. Because I think it's just what people are, are used to and to than to walk into this uh, environment in the airplane where uh, the, um, you know, the experience is so much less is, uh, is not great. They don't, they don't like that. It, does anyone employ a, you know, a tiered model with maybe a, a basic free level of Wi-Fi and then a premium level that uh, offers uh, higher speeds or, or other benefits? I, I know uh, the hotel industry does that sometimes. Hilton does that, right? You can you know, get your, uh, your your free Wi-Fi, but uh, you can also purchase a, a premium level or if you're high enough in their affinity program, you get that for free. But uh, there is an option for a faster speed. Do the airlines do that? Yes, they do. And many of them have started out by offering free messaging. Um, so just just for example, Southwest Airlines, for example, you can access connectivity to, to message uh, people in your network, but not for actual free browsing on Southwest. Not yet. It's $8 on Southwest right now. Um, but yes, airlines around the world have been experimenting with that. Um, but Delta, I believe it was now a year and a half ago, Ed Bastian uh, said that he wanted to offer free internet browsing. That kicks it up a notch. That kicks the tier, what would have been like the baseline tier of free messaging. It, it kicks it up a notch to actually, I want to be able to offer free browsing as baseline. Um, that then requires um, a lot more capacity because when you go to a free model uh, for internet browsing, 
your percentage of passengers who are using the service skyrockets. So you go from anywhere from 8 to 10% on a paid session model to over 60% or more on a free model. And so you can kind of imagine what that will mean uh, in terms of cost. And that's where this kind of vertically integrated model of the uh, satellite operator being in more control of that um, might be able to be better positioned to price things right for the airlines. Um, because right now, just using, again, GoGo as an example, it would have reached agreements with Intelsat, with SES, with all these global satellite operators for a certain amount of capacity to be able to support its airline customers. But when you bring those parties closer together and you have a bit more control over the pricing, then theoretically things should be able to be supported in a better way. At least that is the great hope. Um, but I do think that we've gotten a taste of being uh, connected all the time now at home and uh, needing to work. And I, I don't see that changing when we get on board an aircraft. You're still going to have the expectation of getting your work done. That makes in-flight connectivity all the more important. Um, I've used in-flight connectivity max to get work done on board aircraft really since its inception. Um, that's been my main use for it um, because I love to be able to arrive at a city with the, the decks cleared and the inbox mm -hmm. <laughs> cleared out so that I might be able to enjoy a little bit of time and have a nice dinner at the destination and not be scrambling to get work done. That's always been a big one for me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so getting work done, I think there's a new focus on that. One thing I wanted to just touch upon you know, of course, business aviation sector, uh, which we co cover to a certain extent at Runway Grow, particularly from the, the, the passenger experience technology side of the equation, um, it's starting to show signs of, of recovery um, first. And even GoGo has said that they're starting to see some momentum behind uh, the sale of their, their systems for the business aviation community because there's kind of an expectation that you know, these kind of corporate, uh, you know, jet flyers will, will come back first. Max, are you hearing anything on that front in terms of the business aviation perhaps benefiting from recovery before the commercial sector? Yes. In fact, Mary, I, I have been hearing that. And it's interesting because it seems that business aviation is uh, often the last to recover after an economic downturn. But uh, in this case, right. business aviation, BizAv is a that's being seen, I think, as a viable alternative to commercial flights. You have reduced interactions with others at the terminal. You have reduced interactions with others in flight. So that gives the, the impression of maybe a safer travel experience for some people. Right. Of course, uh, you've also got smoother and faster departure and arrival processes. That's always been the case with uh, BizAv. Um, but also increased point-to-point flight options. And I think right. this may be a big one because as airlines have been scaling back some of their uh, some of their routes, uh, some of those point-to-point uh, -point options are not available with, uh, with commercial flights, but uh, with BizAv, you, you have that. So, uh, and I think not only is all of that appealing to business flyers, but also other flyers who have the means to take advantage of these kinds of flights are also seeing this and thinking, wow, you know what, this, um, 
you know, when you compare the costs, when you compare the the perceived safety difference and the convenience difference, it becomes very attractive. So I think these things are right. uh, kind of conspiring to make uh, business aviation attractive to many folks. Yeah, certainly good news for the business aviation uh, side of the equation. Uh, you know, they, they've had, as you say, some difficulties in the past. So, um, but of course, we're hopeful for recovery all the way around. Yes, <laughs> I don't well. know that we'll ever get back to the 2019 levels. I think I think most people are in agreement that maybe that was the heyday, 2019. Uh, what do you think, Max? In terms of, do you think we'll ever get back there? Yes, I do. I think we'll get back there. Yeah. Um, I think it it could take um, you know three or four years, maybe. But I think that's the state that people prefer. And if we, you know, get yeah. through the pandemic, I mean, we've had pandemics in the past and not to minimize this one because, you know, the the uh, forget the economic part of it. But, the you know, the personal the result of this has been tragic in terms of number of people that um, have uh, lost their lives and have been affected medically in other ways as well. I mean, that's that's terrible. But we've had pandemics in the past, some of them pretty uh, dramatic if you go back 100 years. And the human species finds a way to, you know, recover from that. Uh, obviously, is, is you know, as you mentioned earlier, vaccine is a is a big part of that. But right. there's other ways people find to uh, you know to accommodate the difficulties, and and I think people will return to what I call that you know their preferred state, which includes a lot of travel, includes a lot of uh, social and personal interaction with other with other people. I think we'll get there. It will take a while, and the travel industry uh, I hope can weather the you know the storm between now and then. Yeah, gosh, I hope so. Um, I I like your 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 positive attitude there, Max. Got to be positive. Um, yeah, that is inspiring. Yep, absolutely. Well, we're rapidly coming to a close. We want to thank our listeners. And remember, you can find us online at RomeGirlNetwork.com and on Apple and Google Podcasts. Be sure to follow all the Romeo Girl Network activity on Twitter at at Girl. And remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. We would love to have you. So please join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX podcast. Take care, everyone. 